Welcome to the September 9th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll review updated results of a Phase 1b study that provides strong support for the use of fixed-duration venetoclax in patients with relapsed or refractory CLL. Next, we'll review a research paper that provides new insights on the different subtypes of invariant natural killer T-cells, which appear to have diverse immunoregulatory properties and anti-tumor effects. We will finish up with a report indicating that rare variants in the telomerase gene, TERT, are under-recognized in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, providing a new insight into the germline genetic component of disease pathophysiology. The title of the first research article is Efficacy of Venetoclax plus Rituximab for Relapsed CLL, Five-Year Follow-Up of Continuous or Limited Duration Therapy. The lead author is Shu Ma with the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. In this report, Shu Ma and co-authors from multiple institutions report that venetoclax plus rituximab induces deep and durable responses, regardless of whether patients received the regimen continuously or for a limited duration after achieving a deep response. As background, the emergence of B-cell receptor signaling inhibitors has clearly shifted the treatment paradigm for patients with CLL. Even if patients only achieve partial responses on these inhibitors, the responses are often durable, so long as patients remain on continuous therapy over the long term. With that in mind, an unmet need is for treatment strategies that can achieve deep remissions without the requirements of long-term ongoing therapy. Venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor, is one targeted therapy that may help achieve this goal. In patients with relapsed or refractory CLL, single-agent venetoclax has produced complete response rates of 16 to 20 percent. Further, undetectable minimal residual disease, or MRD, in the peripheral blood was seen in about one-third of patients, including some with chromosome 17p deletion, a marker of poor prognosis. Combining venetoclax with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, like rituximab, has been shown to yield even higher rates of complete response and undetectable MRD. That leads us to the Phase 1b study by Ma and her colleagues that appears now in the Blood Journal. In a previous report published in 2017 on this Phase 1b study, adding rituximab to venetoclax in patients with relapsed or refractory CLL, resulted in a CR rate of 51% and a 57% rate of undetectable MRD in bone marrow. That translated into a two-year progression-free survival, PFS, rate of 82%. Subsequently, results of the randomized Phase 3 Murano trial have demonstrated that venetoclax plus rituximab yielded significantly higher rates of PFS as compared to a standard chemoimmunotherapy regimen. Likewise, results of the randomized Phase 3 CLL-14 trial demonstrated that venetoclax paired with another anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, obinutuzumab, was also superior to a chemoimmunotherapy regimen. One issue that hasn't been thoroughly addressed, however, is whether the venetoclax and rituximab regimen is associated with more durable responses when it is given continuously as compared to the regimen given for a limited duration. 
In their previous report on the Phase 1b study, Ma and co-investigators observed that in select patients with deep responses, sustained remission was possible without ongoing treatment. That question is revisited in this update of the study, which includes a median follow-up of approximately five years or three years longer than the original report. This multicenter dose escalation and cohort expansion study included adult patients with relapsed or refractory CLL or small lymphocytic lymphoma. To be included in the study, patients had to have adequate marrow function and an ECOG performance status no greater than one. Patients were excluded if they had prior stem cell transplant or had received three or more previous myelosuppressive treatment regimens. Other exclusion criteria included uncontrolled autoimmune hemolytic anemia or thrombocytopenia or infection with HIV, hepatitis B, or hepatitis C virus. Patients received venetoclax and rituximab over six months, followed by venetoclax monotherapy. Patients who achieved undetectable MRD status had the option to stop therapy entirely or to continue on venetoclax. A total of 49 patients were enrolled. The median age was 68 years. The patients had received a median of two prior therapies. Median time on venetoclax was 2.5 years. The overall response rate was 86%, including 53% who achieved CR or CR with incomplete marrow recovery. The five-year rate of PFS was 56%, with an estimated median PFS of 5.6 years. The five-year rate of overall survival was 86%, with the median not reached. Among responders, the five-year rate of ongoing response was 58%, with an estimated median duration of response of 6.2 years. Importantly, in patients who had deep responses and opted for continuous venetoclax therapy, there was no apparent incremental benefit over what was achieved in deep responders who opted for limited-duration therapy. About two-thirds of the patients, or 33 patients, achieved CR or undetectable MRD. Of those, 14 decided to remain on venetoclax therapy, while 19 stopped treatment. The five-year estimate of response duration was about 71% in deep responders who chose continuous venetoclax and 79% in deep responders who chose limited-duration venetoclax. The five-year estimate of PFS was 79% in the continuous venetoclax group and, similarly, 80% in the limited-duration group. Median time on venetoclax was 5.6 years in the continuous group and just 1.4 years in the limited-duration group. In those 19 deep responders who opted to stop venetoclax, six had subsequent disease progression. Those six patients had disease progression two or more years after being off therapy, and in one case, 6.4 years after being off therapy. At the time of data cutoff, two of the six did not require further therapy, while four restarted venetoclax and rituximab. Three out of four of those patients achieved partial responses following retreatment. There were no additional safety findings in patients who continued venetoclax treatment beyond two years, according to the investigators. Treatment emergent adverse events occurring in 20% or more of patients included upper respiratory infection, neutropenia, diarrhea, and nausea. Grade 3 to 4 treatment emergent adverse events occurring in 10% or more included neutropenia and leukopenia. These findings lend strong support to the benefit of fixed-duration therapy in patients with relapsed CLL, according to John Gribben of Bart's Cancer Institute in London. In a commentary also published in Blood, 
Gribben said the Phase 1b study is important because it was the first to show the depth of response that can be achieved with venetoclax combination therapy. The study also introduced the value of limited-duration therapy. Finally, the study demonstrates that retreatment with venetoclax plus rituximab is feasible and apparently successful. In his commentary, Gribben points out that BCL2 mutations were found in two patients progressing on continuous therapy, raising the possibility that continued venetoclax may apply pressure that contributes to the emergence of treatment resistance. Taken together, the long-term results of the Phase 1b study by Ma and co-authors demonstrate that in patients with relapsed or refractory CLL who receive venetoclax plus rituximab and achieve deep response, intermittent time-limited treatment with venetoclax is feasible. The results also suggest that continuous therapy is not necessary for most patients with relapsed refractory CLL, supporting the current standard fixed-duration approach used with venetoclax rituximab regimen. However, a randomized trial would be required to definitively answer the question of whether continuous or limited duration treatment is best. Next, let's turn to a research article entitled, Invariant Natural Killer T-Cell Subsets Have Diverse Graft-Versus-Host Disease-Preventing and Anti-Tumor Effects. The co-first authors of the article are Christina Moss-Bauer and Julianne Lohmeyer of Stanford University in Stanford, California. The investigations described in this paper indicate that two sublineages of invariant natural killer T-cells, specifically INKT2 and INKT17, mitigate acute graft-versus-host disease in a murine model. Conversely, INKT1 cells exert a stronger anti-tumor effect in in vitro and in in vivo studies. As background, allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, is highly effective, but unfortunately associated with significant morbidity and mortality related to complications including GVHD. Preclinical studies strongly support the feasibility of using cellular immunotherapy to prevent GVHD. Invariant natural killer T-cells are one innate lymphocyte population of interest in this regard. By modulating innate and adaptive immune cells, INK T-cells demonstrate a variety of functions, including immunomodulatory effects and anti-tumor activity. INK T-cells do have the potential to suppress acute and chronic GVHD, based on experimental evidence from mouse studies and observational studies in humans. However, not all INKT cells are created equal. Murine INKT cells differentiate in at least three distinct sublineages. These are known as INKT1, INKT2, and INKT17 cells, which are distinguished based on expression of different transcription factors and effector molecules. Previous studies have provided insights on the development and molecular characteristics of these different types of INKT cells, but little is known about the function of one sublineage relative to another. Accordingly, it's not clear whether all or some of the sublineages would be useful as part of anti-tumor or GVHD immunotherapy. As they describe in their research paper, the investigators sought to better describe the molecular and functional heterogeneity of murine INKT subsets and test their function with regard to anti-tumor effects and potential for GVHD prevention in murine models. First, they developed strategies using flow cytometry to purify each INKT subset to greater than 90% purity. 
The results show, for the first time, that INKT2 and INKT17 cells exhibit an immune regulatory effect that mitigates murine acute GVHD, while INKT1 cells do not. In vitro, the distinct INKT sublineages had differing cytokine production potential and immune regulatory effects. For example, upregulation of CD25 and ICOS on CD4-positive conventional T-cells was inhibited by INKT cells, and to a lesser extent INKT17 cells, while INKT1 cells had no effect. Likewise, the proportion of interferon gamma-expressing CD4-positive conventional T cells was reduced significantly in co-culture with INKT2 and INKT17 cells, but not with INKT1 cells. In a murine model of acute GVHD, those mice receiving INKT2 or INKT17 cells had a significant survival benefit, while no such survival benefit was seen in mice receiving INKT1 cells. In addition, weight and GVHD score were improved in mice receiving INKT2 or INKT17 cells as compared to those receiving INKT1 cells. Furthermore, Histopathologic analysis revealed that mice receiving INKT2 and INKT17 cells had reduced intestinal tissue damage during acute GVHD, while no significant effect was seen in mice receiving INKT1 cells. In contrast, the investigators demonstrated that INKT1 cells had the strongest anti-tumor effect of the three sublineages. In vitro, INKT1 cells exhibited a high level of cytotoxic activity against CD1D-expressing murine lymphoma cells, while INKT2 and INKT17 cells had minimal, if any, effect. Furthermore, INKT1 cells extended survival in an animal model. Conversely, INKT2 and INKT17 cells demonstrated a trend toward improved survival that did not reach statistical significance. In a commentary also published in Blood, Kate A. Markey of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York said this study helps define characteristics of INKT sublineages in unprecedented detail. She said the transplant field has been quite interested in INKTs for years, but until now, the specific anti-tumor and immunoregulatory effects of each INKT subtype has been unknown. In parallel, Adoptive transfer of INKTs is being evaluated in clinical trials of cancer-directed immunotherapy. Going forward, based on these study results, it will be important to assess the sublineage composition of INKT cells to be transferred in order to maximize the potential anti-tumor or immune regulatory effects, according to Markey. Overall, this research paper provides a formal demonstration of the variety of functions exhibited by INKT1, INKT2, and INKT17 sublineages. These findings provide a potential explanation for the pleiotropic activity of INKT cells that has been observed in previous studies. These findings also will have important implications when it comes to the clinical translation of INKT-based therapies. The final article is entitled, The Clinical and Functional Effects of TERT Variants in Myelodysplastic Syndrome. The first authors include Christopher R. Riley and Miko Milimaki of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. 
In this research article, the investigators demonstrate that TERT rare variants are present in nearly 3% of MDS patients and are associated with an increase in non-relapse mortality following stem cell transplantation. By way of background, it is important to note that impairment of the maintenance of telomeres is implicated in the pathogenesis of MDS. Also, short telomere length in MDS patients prior to stem cell transplantation has been linked to increased risk of non-relapse mortality. There are a number of known germline pathogenic variants that affect proteins associated with telomeres and telomerase, leading to short telomeres and impaired telomere maintenance. The most frequently mutated gene in patients with telomere biology disorders is TERT, which encodes telomerase reverse transcriptase. Most germline TERT variants associated with disease are missense variants that reduce enzyme activity, leading to shorter telomeres. To date, the prevalence and clinical significance of TERT variants among MDS patients unselected for suspicion of a telomere biology disorder are unknown. Accordingly, researchers in the present study sought to characterize TERT variants and analyze their functional and clinical effects among patients with MDS who underwent allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. The study included a cohort of 1,514 patients with MDS and no clinical diagnosis of a telomere biology disorder from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research database. In this cohort, Researchers sequenced the TERT coding region and examined known germline single nucleotide polymorphisms. They measured the relative telomere length using a quantitative polymerase chain reaction. The study also included a separate cohort of patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. In this cohort, TERT was sequenced in DNA extracted from mobilized whole peripheral blood samples. Overall, they identified a total of 270 non-synonymous TERT coding variants in the MDS and NHL cohorts. These variants were separated into two groups by their reported frequency in the general population, as common, or those with an allele frequency greater than 0.001, or rare, those with an allele frequency of less than 0.001. 84% of the variants were classified as common variants not typically associated with disease pathology. There was no difference in the frequency of TERT common variants between the MDS and NHL cohorts. By contrast, TERT rare variants were significantly more common in the MDS cohort. They found TERT rare variants in 41 of the MDS patients, or 2.7% of that cohort, compared to only a single NHL patient amounting to just 0.25% of that cohort. Patients with a TERT rare variant had shortened telomere length and a younger age at MDS diagnosis as compared to patients without a TERT variant. By contrast, patients with a TERT common variant had similar telomere length and age at MDS diagnosis as compared to those without a TERT variant. At five years, overall survival in the 41 MDS patients with a TERT rare variant was 24%, cumulative incidence of non-relapse mortality was 52.5%, and cumulative incidence of relapse was 27.5%. In multivariable analysis, TERT rare variants were linked to inferior overall survival and an increased rate of non-relapse mortality when compared with the absence of a TERT rare variant. The hazard ratio for death was 1.5, with a 95% confidence interval of 1.04 to 2.20,
and a p-value of 0.03. The hazard ratio for non-relapse mortality was 1.75, with a confidence interval of 1.13 to 2.72, and a p-value of 0.01. The impact of TERT-rare variants on prognosis was independent of age, performance status, HLA matching, and other established clinical predictors of non-relapse mortality. Of note, among patients with a TERT-rare variant, death from a non-infectious cause, particularly pulmonary disease, was more frequent than in those without a TERT-rare variant. Although sequencing of normal tissue from the patients was not done in the study, the allele frequency of approximately 0.5 suggested that most of the TERT-rare variants were germline. By cloning rare missense variants and quantifying their impact in a cell-based assay, investigators determined that 90% of the variants had an intermediate or severe impairment of their ability to elongate telomeres. In a related commentary, Luca Malcavati of the University of Pavia in Italy wrote that this study has important implications for clinical and translational research. Previously, High-throughput DNA sequencing allowed for the identification of key somatic mutational drivers of MDS. Now, he said these findings help elucidate the relative contribution of the germline genetic component to MDS pathophysiology. The prevalence of TERT-rare variants in 2.7% is not negligible in this population of patients with no concurrent diagnosis of a telomere disorder, he added. Accordingly, the results appear to support the notion of systematic genetic screening for germline variants in MDS patients who are candidates for allogeneic stem cell transplantation in order to inform donor selection and guide risk-adapted approaches. Taken together, the findings presented in the research article suggest that TERT-rare variants help define a subset of patients with MDS who may have an unrecognized telomere biology disorder, according to the authors of the study. In turn, those unrecognized telomere biology disorders may be contributing to MDS pathogenesis. As such, identifying TERT-rare variants through systematic genetic screening has the potential to inform selection of donors, to aid in family counseling, and importantly, to mitigate non-relapse mortality risk. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.